Good morning, church family. It's, uh, it's so good to be with you again. Um, I took a couple weeks just to step back and decompress and, and to rest and to do soul care, all the things that we want to continue to remind you to do. Um, and uh, before I jump in this morning, I just wanted to say thank you to all the men and women, the staff, as well as a number of folks that share their testimonies and share their stories. It was really a blessing for me to sit with my family at home and to watch and to participate in the worship gathering. Uh, we really are the body of Christ, and to hear multiple voices uh, was, was a true blessing. Uh, in my time away, um, there is a, a verse that anchored me, actually in my leave of absence about a year and a half ago, that came back to the forefront, and, and, and the Lord really ministered to me through it. It's Psalm 4610, where it says, Be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I'm God. It's been said that we probably live in the, in the least contemplative society ever. The least contemplative society ever. And in this season of enforced stillness, the question for me and the question for all of us is, are we still enough? Are we quiet enough? Are we slowing down enough to hear God, to see God? I've said this, I think, a couple weeks ago when, when, when this whole thing started, but really there's a, there's a part of me that says it'd be really tragic if we wasted this season, if we wasted this pandemic, and that when life, get back, life gets back to normal, we emerge from this unchanged. And by, and by the way, uh, it, it, do we really want to get back to normal if normal was a life of self-centeredness, if normal was a life of independence apart from community, if normal was spiritual apathy, if normal was one where we weren't where we needed to be with the Lord. I, I would hope that this pandemic will do something to our spiritual lives. Matter of fact, I am sure that this pandemic actually will do something to our spiritual lives. Church family, don't waste your sorrows. Don't waste your sorrows. I'm convinced that all of us will emerge from this one of two ways. We will emerge from this changed, transformed, deeper, stronger, more mature, more dependent, more intimate with the Lord, or we may emerge from this completely unchanged. And my prayer has been every single day that the Lord will use this, use this season in a redemptive way. Um, so starting today, we're starting this new sermon series, and, and we're simply calling it Redeeming the Times. And the premise is simple. The premise is that instead of just biding our time, waiting for things to get back to the way it was, believing that God is absolutely, even in the midst of, middle of what we're going through, that we will use this time, this season, in a redemptive way, in such a way that it will, again, cause our faith to grow, to mature, to strengthen so that there will be growth, maturity, healing, reconciliation. Will we make the most of this time that we have or will we waste it? I want us to continue to come around that question as we, as we launch into this series. We're going to essentially do a book study, you guys, through the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. 
I know the number of us kind of fumbled through uh, pronouncing that. And that's okay because there's like 10 different ways actually in Hebrew that you could pronounce it. It's only three chapters long. And actually a lot of us know a handful of verses from this book that are very popular. But most of us are actually quite unfamiliar with the book as a whole. Let me tell you a little bit about Habakkuk. So Habakkuk lives during the last remaining years of the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. Habakkuk lives during a time where the nation of Israel is going through tremendous turmoil and hardship. See, see the, the, the kingdom of Judah had experienced decades of flourishing and spiritual revival under a, a godly king by the name of King Josiah. But when he dies and his son Jehoiakim uh, takes over, the nation begins to essentially disintegrate. The Bible says he was a, a wicked and a corrupt king. And under his reign, idolatry, the sin of idolatry emerges under the nation. And as a result, injustice, hardship, and suffering begins to rule the land. The nation is in complete disarray. There's corruption, there's poverty, there's suffering, there's injustice everywhere. Matter of fact, Habakkuk gives a very bleak picture of sort of societal level starvation towards the end of the book. Life is incredibly hard in the nation of Israel. Why is this book so pertinent? Well, from the description I just gave, you might be able to guess why this book is so pertinent for us as we launch into this sermon series. Just real quick, you know, I've heard, and I actually said this in the beginning, people refer to this as sort of unprecedented times. I kind of know what they mean, but, but in a way, I'm kind of sitting here going, you know, this is another way in which I think our current generation, our culture, society totally misses the point. What do I mean? Human history, world history has been marked by times and seasons in which things were really hard. Things were incredibly hard. Matter of fact, for those of us in the West, we forget that what we're going through, matter of fact, things even worse, is the everyday norm of folks. The reason why I share that is because our culture doesn't see suffering or hardship or trials as anything that's natural or normal, or more importantly, to be cultivated. You see, we see in our culture no redemptive value in suffering and hardship. When suffering and hardship comes, life just stops. Life just stops. When other cultures see suffering and hardship as an opportunity, our culture just has an aversion to it. This is the reason why so much of what you and I read in the Bible just doesn't resonate with us. When in many parts of the global church, much of what Scripture says resonates with them. Why? Because Scripture is written to people who are going through tremendous suffering and hardship. I would say this, not wanting to suffer is absolutely human. None of us wants to. But thinking that we don't deserve to is unchristian. Because the one that we follow himself said, in this world, what? You will, you will have trouble. But here's the good news. I have overcome the world. And the other thing about our culture is that we don't think we have a choice when suffering comes. You know what I mean. We think that suffering robs us of choices. But I would say this, church, to you today. We do have a choice on how we respond. See, we can either become the servant of suffering and hardship, or we could make suffering and hardship our servant. 
Suffering can derail our faith and make us angry, bitter, resentful, or suffering and hardship could strengthen our faith and make us wiser, deeper, better. The same sun that softens wax hardens clay. We have a choice in how we respond. You know, no scripture is more misused than Romans 8, 28. See, that, that passage carries a wonderful promise that God works together for the good of those who love him. But you know what that means? That means that sometimes we respond. We respond to our circumstances in a way that brings good to that situation. Brené Brown says, I hope that faith would be an epidural for pain. It turns out to be a midwife who says, push, I'm here. Sometimes it hurts. See, faith says that we have a choice on how we will respond and lean in to the challenges that lie before us. Habakkuk was also faced with a choice. See, the book begins with Habakkuk asking questions that you and I have all asked. God, why is this happening, God? How long will this, uh, will this last? And how could you, God, allow this? You've asked these questions. I've asked these questions. Well, how would the prophet Habakkuk respond? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, I think it might be the verse in this book that sort of anchors the entire book. And it simply says this, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. What does it mean to live by faith during times such as this? What does it mean to live by faith when there's so much suffering, hardship, and injustice? around us what does it mean to live by faith when god appears to be silent one other interesting note about this book and then we'll jump in i'm sort of going to do an overview a broad overview and we'll dig deeper in the coming weeks most prophets spoke to god uh, spoke to people for god most prophets spoke to the people for god interesting about habakkuk is that habakkuk actually speaks to god for the people. It's a very personal book as he speaks to God. Matter of fact, chapters 1 and 2 sort of could be a dialogue between God and Habakkuk. In the first two chapters, Habakkuk launches questions, accusations actually, towards God, and we see God responding to his prophet. So let's jump in. Broad overview. Chapter 1 can be described as Habakkuk's worrying. Habakkuk's worrying. We pick up in verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction, violence are before me. There is strife. There is conflict that abounds. Verse 4. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted that's a lament and we're going to pick up on this next week that is a prayer of lament see Habakkuk knows that Judah is quickly deteriorating and it's only a matter of time before the nation will be obliterated and it becomes clear in the first few verses that Habakkuk has been actually crying out to God for a while but no answer has come and Habakkuk is entering into a season of tremendous doubt 
He's saying, God, how long do you want me to look out and see all this? God, where are you? God, how long do you want me to cry out to you for help? Why, God, are you allowing any of this to happen? God, there is so much despair, so much evil, hardship, and suffering everywhere. God, don't you care? Don't you care? And I love the fact that these are incredibly honest questions. And the thing that so encourages me is that Habakkuk is completely real and honest with God about his anger, about his disappointment, about his confusion, and about his despair. And as we'll see, he doesn't hold back any of this. Matter of fact, when we come to verse 12, he's completely irrelevant and disrespectful even. He literally says, we'll come to this in verse 12 of chapter 1, Lord, are you not from everlasting? That, by the way, is a rhetorical question, and most Hebrew scholars will tell you that that is a form of insult. In most of the occasions where that, where that uh, question uh, or verse appears in the Old Testament, 96 of them are between human beings to each other. Matter of fact, it is one of the most offensive, insulting questions that's posed before God in all of the Old Testament literature. Now, this is a powerful, powerful lesson for us to learn here. What is that lesson? See, I've, I've, I've talked to a number of us who grew up in sort of religious, churchy backgrounds where, frankly, we were taught that being angry, being confused, being depressed was a sign of spiritual immaturity, a sign of lack of faith. You know what I would argue? I would argue that the sign of spiritual maturity is paying attention to what you're feeling, paying attention to what I'm feeling, and being rigorously honest about it with God and with ourselves. That is spiritual maturity. That is a sign of faith. See, if being angry and confused and depressed is a sign of lack of faith or spiritual maturity, how do you explain these examples in the scriptures? How do you explain Job, who for 35 chapters doesn't hold back his anger, his disappointment, his confusion, and he lashes out at God? And by the way, our English Bible sort of sanitizes the level of honesty that's written in Hebrew. How do you explain David, who writes vast majority, 40% of the book of Psalms, which are lament? And there's some angry prayers in there. There's some wild prayers in there. By the way, did you know that Psalm 39 and Psalm 88 literally ends with the psalmist saying, leave me alone. That's how the psalm ends. Leave me alone. And how do you explain the Son of God? Who in confusion and despair cries out in the Garden of Gethsemane, Why? Why have you forsaken me? Read your Bibles, church. God welcomes your anger. God welcomes your confusion. God welcomes your disappointments. He could handle it. God could handle it. Having said that, even in their deep struggle and pain and confusion, these godly men and women don't walk away from God. They don't stop following God. They don't stop praying to God. They bring their anger, they bring their confusion, they bring their doubts to God in prayer. They didn't blog about it. 
They don't write Facebook posts about it or, or write something on Twitter. Like Habakkuk, the best thing that you and I can do when in our confusion, when in our doubts, when in our bitter disappointment is to bring all of them honestly to God in prayer. God doesn't get offended. God doesn't get insulted when we bring them honestly to God. God, I'm hurting. God, I'm confused. God, I'm doubting. I'm angry. God, I'm deeply afraid. And the last thing I want to do is relinquish control and trust you. But just like Peter, God, where would I go? You have the words of life. See, maybe faith isn't about never struggling or never being confused or never doubting. Maybe faith, church, is trusting God with our confusion, with our pain, and with our disappointments. Maybe faith is going to God with our pain, going to God with our confusion, going to God with our disappointments, and trusting ultimately that He is enough. Maybe that's faith. And God actually then responds to his prophet. And by the way, it's, it's kind of comical, like, the, the, the back and forth. God says to Habakkuk, I, okay, you want to know, I'll tell you, but you're not going to get it. Habakkuk says, tell me anyway. God says, are you sure? You're not going to get it, so tell me anyway. God goes, okay, well, here it is, starting verse 5. And Habakkuk, of course, says, I don't get it. And God's like, I told you, you wouldn't get it. So look at verse 5 with me. God's response. God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Verse 6. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. You know what God essentially says? God essentially says to Habakkuk, okay, Habakkuk, here's my plan. I'm going to use a nation even more unjust, even more evil, and even more idolatrous than Israel to bring about Israel's salvation. That's what I'm going to do. And this was not the response that Habakkuk was expecting. So Habakkuk then questions God again, verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? Again, there's that insult. Then he says, though, my God, he doesn't run away. My Holy One, we will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? What is Habakkuk saying? He's saying, God, you're holy. So how can you possibly bring about salvation from judgment? God, how can you possibly bring about justice from injustice? How can you possibly bring about good from evil? These are the questions that Habakkuk is asking, but they're not exclusive to Habakkuk, are they? It, for Habakkuk, it's suffering and evil that caused him to ask, how can you possibly do anything good out of this? But what questions are you asking this morning? What questions am I asking this morning? 
What's causing you to question God? Maybe for some of us, it's the death of someone that we loved. God, why, why would you let someone, such an incredible person, to die? Maybe it's a friend or a family member who's sick. And you're saying, God, why, why won't you just heal her? Why won't you just heal him? You have the power to. Maybe you're going through an intensely personal situation. Lord, why is my marriage crumbling? Why, why is my son, my daughter, enslaved to drugs when, when, when we've raised them in a godly home? Oh, God, God, why, when I'm doing my best for you, that I'm always experiencing the worst. God, why am I still in bondage when I continue to surrender this to you again and again and again? God, how long are you going to remain silent while I'm losing my job or my business is closing and the house is foreclosing? God, how long when I can't even put food on the table for my family? It's not just personal questions that cause us to ask why. God, how long are you going to allow racism and injustice to wreak havoc? in our land. God, why are you allowing so much suffering and death? See, for Habakkuk, God's answer wasn't an answer at all. It made the problem even worse for him. But here's the thing. Listen. Listen, here's the thing. Habakkuk didn't have the vantage point that you and I do living on the other side of the cross. But let me be really clear. Just because we have the vantage point of living on the other side of the cross, it doesn't mean a darn thing if you and I don't use it on our hearts. And I'm constantly telling you this. What do I mean? The answer to Habakkuk's question is ultimately found, its ultimate expression is found in who? In Jesus. See, no one stood there 2,000 years ago Watching Jesus on the cross, the wisest, most loving act in the history of mankind and thought, God will surely bring justice out of this. God will surely bring salvation out of this. God will surely bring healing and redemption out of this. God will surely bring good out of this evil. And yet, the vantage point that we have that anchors us in our faith, church, is that God promises. God promises that he is able to take evil and bring good out of it. He is able to take darkness and bring light out of it. He is able to bring, take judgment and bring salvation out of it. He is able to take injustice of any kind and bring justice out of it. Can I get an amen? This is our anchor. Interesting enough, years later, Paul is in Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 13. He is the city of Antioch, and this is what he says. He's preaching a sermon. He is preaching the gospel. He says, God raised him from the dead. Through Jesus, the forgiveness is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Then he says this. Then he says, look and be utterly amazed. Sound familiar? Uh, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Paul looks at Habakkuk 1.5 in light of the cross. In light of the cross. So 
So you and I look at our lives in light of the cross. But Peter, the cross was about the past. No, the cross is about the present. It's about now. It's about today. Look at your life and my life from the shadow of the cross. That means that whatever trial, whatever hardship, whatever challenge, whatever even evil and injustice done to us, we have a God who could bring justice out of it, redemption out of it, healing out of it, good out of it. Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk is worrying. We come to chapter 2, Habakkuk's waiting. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the towers. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. And I love this imagery, church. Check this out. He needs a different perspective on his life, a perspective from God that comes in the waiting. Right? I stand at the tower waiting. Verse 2, then the Lord said to me, write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Verse 4, but the righteous will live by faith. But the righteous will live by faith. Who are the righteous? Who are the righteous? Good people? Moral people, church-going people, people who are doing lots of ministry serving God. That's not the righteous person in Scripture. The righteous person is the sinner who has been declared righteous by God because he has placed his or her faith in Christ alone. That is the only way to be declared righteous by God. There is no other way. And because we are saved by faith, the scripture says we are to live by faith. So what does it mean to live by faith? To Habakkuk living by faith meant believing that God will do what he said he will do. To live by faith means that we too trust God's word. Church, when circumstances don't make any sense, when things don't work out the way we had planned, to live by faith means that we don't take matters into our own hands because we're tired of waiting. We are more susceptible to temptation during this time than during any other time. Let me say that again. We are more susceptible to temptation during times like this than any other time. Living by faith means, Psalm 37, 1, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Living by faith, we're constantly talking about this, means that we trust God. We trust that God is good, that he is faithful, that he is trustworthy and is at work on Saturday just as much as he is on Friday and Sunday. To trust that God is at work, that his silence doesn't mean absence, that his hiddenness does not mean abandonment. To live by faith means that despite the circumstances or consequences, we lean in and trust that our God is at work. To live by faith means that we wait with God and not just on God. To live by faith means that we wait with God and not just on God. To wait with God will change you. To just wait on God will frustrate you. If you're waiting with God, waiting is okay. It's about the journey. 
It's about the relationship. He is at work. Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he is with me. In the waiting, God is working even when we don't see it. But if you're just waiting on God, constantly just waiting on God, it's about the outcome. So it's always about how and when and where. And I'll tell you this, God never, God never works on our timetable. Never. To us, waiting is wasting if we're just waiting on God. But we're waiting with God. Waiting with God means that God is working. So I don't know the amount of pain or the anguish you might be in today, but I can assure you that your best resource, your only resource, is to bring it to God, is to bring it to God and to wait on God and to keep trusting God in his word. And real quick, and we'll delve more into this, God gives us two assurances here to help us in the waiting. Chapter 2, verse, verse 14, it says, for the, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. First assurance is that God assures of his glory. What do I mean? This means that although the earth is now filled with violence and corruption and death and decay, God promises that just as waters cover the seas, a day will come when God's glory will fill the entire earth and renew it and restore it and heal it. God has a great, greater plan for the earth than the evil it currently suffers. That means that God has a greater plan for you and a greater plan for me than the suffering and the pain and the sadness that we are currently experiencing. A day will come when God's glory will fill the earth and God will once and for all destroy all evil, all evil and wipe every tear from our eyes. Not only do we have the assurance of experiencing this complete and final glory in its final phase then, but we also have access to his glory now through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Ah, oh, this is such an incredible, incredible passage. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Did you know that you became filled with God's glory the moment that you trusted Christ for salvation? So enjoy God's glory now in its current state. What does that mean? That means that God's glory is now at work in you and in me, and he will finish that work. And you and I could rest assured that every difficult season, every difficult situation that you and I endure here today will be transformed into an utterly eternal and beautiful and complete glory. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Nothing. God assures of his glory, but God also assures of his government. Chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord, it is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And we're going to come back to this in the coming weeks. He's saying empires like Babylon and other powerful nations on earth will rise and fall. But God's kingdom endures forever. The clock is ticking on emperors, on presidents, and dictators. They're going to come and go. But the Lord sits on his throne, and his kingdom endures forever. That means that in spite of all your suffering and anguish, in the middle of your pain, in the middle of all the things that we're going through, remember that God is sovereign, that he is in control. We remember that God is working for us and all of creation in eternal glory, in eternal glory that we can't even begin to understand. This is our hope. 
Which now brings us to chapter 3. Oh, chapter 3. I can't wait to just, in the coming weeks, delve deeper into, into this chapter with you guys. Chapter 1 is Habakkuk's worrying. Chapter 2 is Habakkuk's waiting. And as he waits on God and as he hears God's word, chapter 3 is Habakkuk's worshiping. Habakkuk's worshiping. Chapter 3 is actually a song, a song. He begins chapter 3 recounting the Exodus story. Verses 1 to 16, the powerful, supernatural ways in God worked in the initial Exodus story to deliver his people from evil and injustice and suffering and hardship. And he points to a future and he says, there's a future Exodus coming. There's a future Exodus coming. Well, God will perform once again miraculous feats and defeat evil and bring justice to his people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it is this hope that causes Habakkuk to burst out in praise and worship. Why worship? Because the truest expression of our trust in God will always be worship. Let me say that again. Because the truest expression of our trust in God will always be worship. You and I have a choice in how we respond. And I would say choose worship, church. Choose worship. Because that's what this entire book is all about. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Don't let what's wrong with your circumstances keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Verses 17 to 19 are his amen to the entire book. That's a beautiful prayer of trust. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crops fail and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to tread on the heights. As we finish, let me leave you with these thoughts. Habakkuk's circumstances hadn't changed at all. Read the book. His circumstances hadn't changed at all. But what has changed is Habakkuk. What has changed is Habakkuk. Maybe the circumstances that we often ask God to change are the very circumstances that God is using to change us. Just like prayer. Prayer is not primarily about changing God or circumstances. Prayer is God ultimately changing us. Habakkuk's circumstances hadn't changed at all. His questions never get answered in the book, but his waiting on God transforms his worship, uh, transforms his worrying into worship. And even though God doesn't do what Habakkuk asked him to do, he exalts God, he worships God in his circumstances. Habakkuk essentially is saying, God, even though everything around me is crumbling, God, even though the economy is sinking, even though I'm experiencing enormous, devastating hardship, suffering, even though there's evil everywhere, God, I will praise you. I will worship you. Even though I have nothing, because of my faith in you, I lack nothing. Even though I have nothing, because of my faith in you, God, I absolutely lack nothing. I will rejoice. You are my salvation. You are my shelter in time of trouble. I will worship you. The truest expression of our trust in God will always be worship.
The size of our worship will often be in proportion to the size of our God. How big is your God? How big is the God that we worship, church? How big is your God? His name is above every name. At his name, demons and darkness flee. He is my rock. He is my sustainer. He is my shelter in time of trouble. He is the risen king. He is the risen king. His timing is perfect, and so is his track record. The truest expression of our trust in God will always be worship. Habakkuk couldn't rejoice in his circumstances, but he could rejoice in his God. He knows that despite his circumstances, that God is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. So whatever trial, whatever hardship, whatever suffering, whatever the circumstances are, church, I want to encourage you as we launch in this series, beginning today, to worship him. To worship him. To worship him. So as we close today, I want to lead you and me, us, in a time of responsive worship. In a time of responsive worship. So wherever you are, in your home, in your living room, in your kitchen, whoever you're with, can I encourage you, if, if at all possible, to, 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 to close your eyes and to, and to lift your hands as you focus and as you think. What does it mean to worship God? Well, first and foremost, how about we spend a moment just declaring who He is? Who He is. And we do this church, when we gather together as a corporate body, we declare various characteristic attributes of our God. And so in, in, in this moment, will you do that? Take a moment just to declare characteristic attributes of God and adore Him. Say, God, you're holy. God, you're worthy. God, you're righteous. God, you're magnificent. God, you are my shepherd. God, you are faithful. God, you are trustworthy. God, you are so good. Whatever attributes that come to mind, will you take a moment just to worship God? Declare, declare who he is. Declare who he is. Declare who he is, church. Declare who he is. Attributes of who he is that resonate with you that the Spirit of God might be speaking to you about right now. Declare it. Say it out loud. Preach to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. And then secondly, so much of our prayer is petition, right? We're constantly asking God for things. How about just today, how about just today, we offer up prayers of thanksgiving, of gratitude. You say, Peter, I can't think of anything but one thing. That's okay. Think of that one thing. Think of that one thing you might be thankful for today and declare a prayer of thanksgiving and gratitude to our God. Say, God, I'm thankful for my family. God, I'm thankful for a job that I still have. God, I'm thankful for, 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 for my health, God, in, in the midst of so much illness. God, I'm thankful for my church family. God, I'm thankful for my community. Whatever comes to mind, think of, think of even one thing if you can't think of anything and think of things that you could thank God about and offer prayers of thanksgiving, church. Scripture says in all things give thanks. Think of one thing that you might be thankful for and offer up to the Lord right now. Hallelujah.
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. God, you are our only hope, our sure help in times of trouble. God, in all times and places, you alone are our strength and our stay. And because we trust in you, we dare to believe that goodness is stronger than evil, that love is stronger than hate, that light is stronger than darkness, and hope is stronger than despair. Heavenly Father, believing that you are faithful to your promises, we look with confidence toward that day when every tear will be wiped away and suffering and pain will be no more and all things will be made new. Help us by your Holy Spirit to continue to live in hope, assured of your power in our lives and trusting in your never-failing love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, all of God's people said, Amen.